Welcome to season two of Cheek by Jowl's podcast, not true, but useful. I'm your host, Lucy Dawkins. These episodes are going out into the world at a time when theatre is in suspended animation. So as an antidote, I'll be chatting to Declan Donnellan and Nick Ormerod, the director-designer duo behind Cheek by Jowl. They're going to share life lessons that they've learned from staging great classic plays, which might help tide us through these strange times. We can't promise that any of these lessons will be true, but we hope you find them useful. This week, our play is William Shakespeare's As You Like It. Declan and Nick staged a seminal production in 1991 with an all-male company led by Adrian Lester as Rosalind, which then went on to tour the world. Here's a quick synopsis before we begin. The story follows the adventures of cousins Rosalind and Celia. Celia's father, Duke Frederick, overthrew and exiled the former Duke, who happened to be Rosalind's father. The old Duke has fled into hiding in the Forest of Arden. A young man called Orlando wins a wrestling match at court, and he and Rosalind fall in love at first sight. Orlando finds out that his brother Oliver is plotting to kill him, and he too runs away to the Forest of Arden. Meanwhile, Duke Frederick flies into a rage and banishes Rosalind from the court. She and Celia decide to run away in disguise. Rosalind dresses as a man, calling herself Ganymede, and Celia pretends to be his sister, Aliena. They head off to, yes, you've guessed it, the Forest of Arden. In the forest, the former Duke is living happily with a band of renegade lords, enjoying a simple life away from the pressures of court. Orlando joins them and spends his time writing love letters to Rosalind and pinning them onto the trees. He runs into Rosalind and Celia, pretending to be Ganymede and Aliena, and fails to recognise the woman he loves under her disguise. Rosalind decides to test his love. As Ganymede, she tells Orlando that she can cure him of his lovesickness. If he comes to her every day and woos her as if she were Rosalind, which of course she actually is, she will teach him to free himself of his desires. At the same time, Rosalind and Celia get caught up in the romantic adventures of some shepherds. One of them, Phoebe, rejects the lovelorn Silvius and falls in love with Rosalind, believing that she is a man. Rosalind finally decides to end the mess. She gathers all the various couples in the play, telling them that she will wed them to the right person in front of the old duke, her father. At the marriage ceremony, she reveals her true identity, is reunited with her father and marries Orlando, as they all celebrate, the news arrives that Duke Frederick has decided to abdicate his throne and return it to his brother. In the Cheek by Jail production, the old Duke decides to stay in the forest and makes Orlando the new Duke, and Orlando then passes it on to Rosalind. The song you're hearing now was composed by Paddy Canine for this production, performed live on stage by members of the company. Winter and rough weather. 
start at the very beginning. Why don't we talk about how you cast Adrian Nestor in this production? Because am I right in understanding that he didn't originally come up for the part of Rosalind? No, we we, we were also open-minded about whether or not to do it all male. Do you remember that? I mean, we thought we'd be a good ruse, but if we couldn't find the right person, we wouldn't do it. We saw Adrian and we said, you know, he's interested in um, reading for Rosalind. And he said, no, he'd rather read for Orlando. And then he went away. And then he phoned us back. <laughs> I think that evening said, do you mind if I come back and read for Rosalind? So, no, he was just wonderful for the part. We were incredibly lucky to have him. And in fact, we owe an enormous amount to Adrian because Adrian agreed to come back to do it a second time round, two or three years later, which is the only time we've ever been able to bring back an English show after three years, unlike Russian, um, French stuff. And so, as you like, it had this extraordinary history going around basically all the world. Let's go back to why you chose to do an all-male production. So you were open-minded at first about whether you were going to do one. Mm, mm. Was it Adrian, casting Adrian as Rosalind, that tipped the balance for you? Or was an all-male production always at the back of your mind for this show? I have to say it was a hunch that it would be an interesting thing to do and it would offer possibilities for life. As all of our work, we didn't do it in order to say anything. But I think sometimes that's the best way to say things, to not know what you're saying, funnily enough, sometimes, particularly if you're an artist. And then extraordinary things come out of it, according to people's interpretations. Well, you had an extraordinary moment at the very beginning of the show where you took Jaquees's speech and Mm -hmm. implanted it in the very first line, said, all the world's a stage and all the men and women players and all the actors all the male actors playing men went to one side of the stage and all the male actors playing women went to the other side of the stage. And that began a great big long play with identity and gender that ran all the way through the show. Now, could you tell us a little bit more about that? About why that interested you? It's difficult to do that because it's, again, it's all on a hunch. So I don't understand it. I I don't actually understand my work. You go in on a hunch rather than thinking, oh, this is going to make this point, and that's going to make the other point. I mean, at the back of our minds, yes, you know, the streets that we walk through on the way to rehearsal, there is the whole Clause 28, and a lot of very unpleasant dark storm clouds in the sky. So that makes your awareness up. But we don't put that directly into the play any more than we did with Angels in America, which we were directing at more or less the same time. It's there in the ether. It's there kind of in the zeitgeist. But no, we're not left-brain people and we're not using our work to uh, make clear points. So Nick, looking at the design of this production, it's almost the polar opposite of the production we talked about in the last episode, Ubu Hua, which had a very realistic set. Here you had an almost entirely empty stage with two entrances from the front, two entrances from the back, and at one point some green streamers for trees and occasionally a prop brought on. How did you arrive at this design? Well, in essence, it comes back to what do you need for the play. And actually, you don't need anything apart from, as you say, a suggestion, I think, of the seasons changing, um, which were the green streamers. So in the second half, it becomes spring and summer. The first half, we're in winter. And they're in the forest and suggest that um, we had a brazier with burning turf and all the men were in overcoats. And so essentially, that's all you actually need for the piece. And the actors can do the rest. Yes, I think you have to point out, as you said, you have to point out the, the, the space. 
the, the um, inexorable quality of the space as it falls into two. There's a space and the non-space. So there's inside and outside. And one here is the court and then the country, the woods where people go to lose themselves and find themselves again. Nick chose to do the difference between court and country in, in the costumes and not in any scenery. But it's also worth, I think, pointing out that we were very careful not to introduce feminine clothes too abruptly. So we you make the transition. We made the transition by presenting all the actors as male actors in black trousers and white shirts, and then only very gradually. And then we see the first two women, as Rosalind and Celia, dressed not really in women's clothes. They were sort of like dressed as priests, almost like in robes. I feel that to introduce them immediately in women's clothes is to a contemporary audience asking for a laugh, basically. So to, to introduce the idea quite slowly and display your cards, you know, so we show them all as, as men and then suggest that they're going to play women and then eventually we do see them dressed as women. And, and it's a site of anxiety. It certainly was in those days, you know, 30 years ago, men dressed as women sort of gets a kind of laugh which is also a comedy. So you have to be quite disciplined to make sure you, know, you can laugh at this, but not this. You know? So you have to kind of um, steer the, the, the audience that way. Well, I think it also set us up for a moment that profoundly shook me in the production, which is at the very, very end, Adrian mm-hmm. removes mm-hmm. his earrings in the epilogue mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. drops his voice very slightly. He hadn't mm-hmm. been speaking in a falsetto, but just a no. slightly higher voice. No. And we'd had this this slow bleed into more and more and more feminine dress, mm, mm, this slow shifting mm, of gender mm, presentation across mm, the end. And then in mm, one movement, he got rid of it and became yeah. Adrian Lester, the actor, talking to the audience in the epilogue, saying, if I were a woman. It was something profoundly wonderful because it was the moment when he'd said, look, I can be many, many different people. Exactly. All it takes is removing my earrings. And guess what? You can be lots of different people too. And there's no such thing as authenticity. No, exactly. That that sort of that author, any authenticity that promises that we're one thing makes an endless misery. I think Shakespeare understands that what is authentically human is our capacity to be many different things. Yeah, and I think what was so brilliant about that moment is that you managed to achieve it so simply. It was the tiniest of gestures and the smallest of voice shifts, Mm -hmm. but only because you'd set all those dominoes up all the way through the production of this very slow shifting Mm. until Adrian ended up in what was a very sexy wedding dress doing the Mm. tango (laughs) and then (laughs) suddenly changed back. The hairs went up because it made you look back at yourself, I think. Yes. I mean, that's a great effect, the fact that you're seeing it and then you see it seeing you back. And you think, well, what's my part in this? But of course, it's not our job to define meaning. It's to, um, but I don't think it's our job to think in terms of meaning at all, actually. We have to leave that to critics or academics or audience members who wish to think in that particular way. Our thing is to do something else and to be open, but be brave enough to work on hunches. And as part of preparing for this episode of the podcast, I also looked at an interview that you gave for this production at the time of doing it, in which you said something very much along these lines, where you said, the important thing is not to judge any of the characters, the goodies and the baddies in the play, but leave it wide open so that the audience can step in with their imaginations and empathise where they want to, as they like it. Um, And this seems very connected to this idea of you avoiding defining meaning 
for the audience. That's very important. But the most important thing behind all of that is that you, uh, you for God's sake, we have to avoid judgment. You, we judge at the very last moment in the court of law, whatever, you know, but we need to really reserve judgment until the last moment. And I think one of the reasons that we like to rush to judgment is that it protects us from sadness. You know, one of the things that happens in the great tragedies, as well as the great comedies, is we watch people very often defending themselves from oceanic sadness and understanding that we are, in our grief, totally separate. There's no such thing as communal grief. We can support each other. We can stand with each other. It's extremely important that we do. But sadness is painful and quite isolating. And we, we jump to judgment because it as a defense against feeling all sorts of other catastrophic emotions that we fear will overwhelm us. And that's also what I, I really enjoyed about watching this production is that you gave unexpected twists to many characters who are usually shown in quite black and white ways in this production. Yeah. For example, Celia, yeah. who in this production has a lot, of, a lot of thoughts about Rosalind and isn't entirely happy about what happens at the end of the play. No, and love is very painful. I mean, if it's not painful, it ain't love. I think that's really important in the idea that you can have pain-free love, that you can have pain-free life. But you can make a lot of money out of selling pain-free love and pain-free life. And that's what I think I enjoyed so much about the design here, Nick, is that by keeping the stage so completely open with all of these bodies moving around it, that when something happened, you could always see the other space happening. You know, you could always see what happened to Celia in her reaction because of what was going on to Rosalind. Um, you could always see that flip side because you left it so open to us. Yes, any production of As You Like It, Lucy, needs an element to attach letters to and to divide the space in order to allow certain people to overhear other conversations. And our green strips of silk, which stood in for trees, allowed for maximum space with minimal clutter. Again, because it was so sparse, there were so few props. And when the props did come on stage, they tended to be imbued with an enormous amount of significance. I'm thinking particularly of the Duke's cross that showed that the Duke was in power. So at the end of the play, the cross arrives to be given to the old Duke, and he decides to give it to Orlando and make Orlando Duke. But then you added an extra moment outside the text where Orlando put the cross around Rosalind's neck and made her the Duke, and that she hesitates before letting him do it. And it, it was actually a beautiful mirror image of, of the very beginning of the play where she puts her necklace around his neck as a sign of love. How did you go about working to make these props so imbued with dynamism in rehearsal? In order to get somebody to see something, you need to make sure you don't distract them. It's the outside space. It's what you don't see. So that when you have something, it has more significance than if you have a load of things. You know, so like, when you want to hide something on the news at the moment, you hide it amongst all sorts of other things, you know? So the obverse of that is that if you want people to see something, you make sure that they're not looking at anything else. Well, I think this also connects to what we were talking about with Mamilius in The Winter's Tale, about the way that you both have a tendency to find the shadow that the light is causing, the, the thing that you're not looking at, the unseen flip side of any event, and that Celia, seeing her dearest friend in the world, who is described as more than just a friend at the beginning of the play, turning into 
in your production, The New Duke, you had everybody on stage kneeling at the same time, apart from her sinking slightly more slowly than everybody else. In this moment of sort of horror (laughs) about having lost her best friend, essentially. But also her having got something that she shouldn't really have had, because if it had worked out otherwise, Celia would have been the more important one. You know, Shakespeare's a great writer because he's so exhaustive in his treatment of human love. You can't do love unless you do loss. And I don't think we can say that loss is the shadow of love. I think what you have to say is love and loss come together. I just think it's really important that you always look at the other space at the same time. Like what has a photographer left out of the photograph? What are the words that Shakespeare hasn't used or that we don't use? It's the, it's not like a hidden something. If you're downstairs, does that mean upstairs is hidden? No, they have to exist at the same time. So you love, you think, oh my God, there's loss. And you think, no, 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 the loss is intrinsic to the love. I'm alive, I'm going to die. Oh, that's a terrible surprise. Well, no, because they're both in each other. And I, I think Shakespeare keys into that. And I think he's very aware of that. So his great love plays are all about loss. They must be. You know, the the fact that Rosalind's great dread with Orlando is the same as Juliet's great love with Romeo. I do think the important thing about falling in love with somebody, many people when they fall in love say, he makes me feel so safe. And I recognize that, the feeling of being made safe. And I I think it's because when we have that moment of falling in love, I I think it takes us back to our, mostly to our mothers, I think. Because I think the first person that anybody falls in love with on the whole is their mother. And that your, our mother gives us that sense of being completely safe. But I think the problem is we crave to get back to it. And we have to lose that. So we have to have the love of feeling absolutely safe. And then the loss of realizing, oh my God, I'm not. And I think when we go back and we have those profound feelings of falling in love, we recognize something and go back in time. It presses a button in us. And I think that's why we have the feeling of being safe. And I think those are happening in Rosalind and, and, and Orlando. And, and that she fears that, really fears, I mean, it's a really big fear. It's not a million miles from Leah, which is the sort of shadow play to as you like it in some respects, about, you know, the ruler out in the wilds. And there's a theme of nothing that he developed so well in Leah. But it's sort of present as a shadow through As You Like It, that there might be nothing. And she has to make sure that Orlando does love her. And I think she understands that the centre of true love is something quite cool, actually. It's kind of cool empathy. When she talks about scouring his heart so there's none of this love left, she wants to test it. She does want him to love her. She wants him to love her passionately. But she wants it to be more real. And the heart is a treacherous place for every human being. You know, none of us are experts. But it's the same problem, I think, that Juliet has, which is trying to probe and see what it actually is behind all of this hyperbole. Well, it's what I find so awe-inspiring about Shakespeare's young female characters, is that they are far further along understanding that than young male characters are. Rosalind understands it much better than Orlando. Juliet understands it much better than Romeo. And I find that quite astounding, the trust that he places in teenage girls. Yes, he does. He had one of his own, Susanna. But they nearly always disobey their fathers. But yes, there are these these very independent women who are very much like, you know, it's active love and they have to educate the men. They're much older than the men. So it's like Juliet's about three times older than Romeo. I mean, they're incredibly ill-suited in a way. 
Yeah, that was the wonderful image of the very last scene. Again, with this moment of of the um, medal going around her neck, is that mm. you could see him realizing that he had to step up to her. Yes, he has to step up there, and, and if anyone's going to rule this kid, it has to be her, because she's so much more capable than he is. But our salvation is understanding that we have something to learn. Uh, the thing is, that the problem with knowing everything is that you, if you know everything, you can't learn anything. And I think um, Orlando does know uh, that he has a lot to learn. He, he's desperate for Rosalind to teach him. And you gave us at least five seconds of tragedy where she finally reveals herself to him. And the way you staged it, he walked away. Mm. He couldn't deal with it. Eventually, they have their resolution. But you did give us the tragedy. The really important thing for me in it, though, is there's something incredibly sad that's to do with her father, who doesn't recognize her. And then Orlando doesn't recognize her. And there's something mythically terrible about not being recognized by the person who loves you. So we've reached our final questions of the podcast, which is always, what were your favorite moments or lines from this play? Nick, why don't we start with you? My favorite moment is the song when they're all sitting in a row on the front edge of the stage and um, Audrey's yodeling for her goats. That is um, both hilarious and really quite touching. It was wonderful that moment. What about you, Declan? It's, it's when Orlando fails to recognise Rosalind. She sets it all up as a great joke. And then the joke backfires in a way because it wouldn't be funny if you didn't recognise me. And she hasn't thought through what the emotional consequences of him not recognising her would be. And then she learns it sharp that it's a nightmare if he doesn't recognise her. It means there's like... It's a kind of nothing will come of nothing moment. It's not there in the surface of the text, but it's underneath it all. It must be, and I think you can feel it in the text because she's absolutely furious afterwards. Um, she's kind of humiliated herself in front of herself. Um, I mean, you know, the last that's the person we really don't want to be humiliated in front of is ourselves. And you know, I think that's a that's an extraordinary moment. That for, that for me, and and Adrian did it just so amazingly what i loved about that moment is is how quickly adrian let rosalind see that and mm. then have to put herself back together again to do the mm. next bit as if it had all been intended <laughs> yeah of seeing her struggle to keep herself together yes did you know my deliberate mistake yeah, and exactly i think that's that for me is quite moving we've heard your favorite moments could you now share your favorite lines let's do it the other way around declan you're up first I think it has to be when Rosalind says, I can do strange things. And that's um, an extraordinary moment of power mm. and, and mystery. Because she's not fully... And what about you, Nick? Anything. What's your favourite line? Is a part, part of a line um, from Celia, which is, 
was is not is. Oh. I'm afraid we do say. <laughs> we use that often. <laughs> we use that quite often. So he was in love with me, but is no longer in love with me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh, that's devastating. It's very good. Well, thank you, Declan and Nick, for a masterclass in love this week. And uh, next time, we're going to be diving into The Tempest. Thank you very much. Thanks, Lucy. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you've enjoyed what you've heard and want to find out more, check out the archive on the Cheek by Jowl website where you can find images from this production. There's a link in the podcast notes. The theme music for this podcast was composed by Paddy Kaneen for Cheek by Jowl's production of The Winter's Tale. Join us next week when we will be bringing you another dose of Shakespeare. And until then, stay well. Stay well.